the next level. <laughs> Anks and Amen, my love has lasted longer than the temples of our gods. No man ever suffered as I did for you, but the rest you may not know. Not until you are about to pass through the great night of terror and triumph. Until you are ready to face moments of horror for an eternity of love. Until I send back your spirit that has wandered through so many forms and so many ages. But before then, Bast must again send forth death. Death to that boy for whom love is creeping into your heart. Love that would keep you from myself. Love that might bring sickness and even death to you. Do you have to open graves to find girls to fall in love with? Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? You know, violently. I wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. The following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. Okay, so let me get this straight. Let me make sure I have this right here. There's this petition going around online right now. To have the brutal slayings of firefighters. The scene is in the upcoming Halloween Kills movie. We want to have those scenes removed because some firefighter-to-be... He's not even an actual firefighter. He's just in training. He got offended because Michael Myers kills firefighters. Do I have this right? Apparently in the first couple days he only had 12 signatures. But anyways. We want fictional killings removed from a horror film because some kid found them offensive. Are you fucking kidding me right now? I mean, talk about wonderful exposure. This is amazing publicity. Like, thanks, kid. <laughs> you got everyone talking on the social meds. And now Halloween Kills is trending, as the kids say these days, even more than it already was. This is priceless. I mean, at the same time, you are aware that, you know, Michael has also fictionally killed teenagers, doctors nurses, uh, policemen and police women, senior citizens, parents, dogs, I hate them for that one, but whatever, radio DJs, a policeman's daughter, Don from Dazed and Confused, his niece, his trashy uncle in the Rob Zombie version, uh, he's killed podcasters, ouch, <laughs> and not to mention so many more, right? Um, hmm. But yeah, let's petition because Michael slaughters through some firefighters 
so that he can continue to slay on in the sequel to David Gordon Green's hit film from 2018. Great call, kid. Your publicity is helping this movie on massive levels. I mean, seriously, can someone petition my little podcast? Like, have it, like, canceled? Because it might get me some extra exposure, help my ratings a little. Please and thank you in advance? Maybe? Anyway. From the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero. The podcast that isn't here to put out the fires, but better yet, let's add fuel to the blaze. Welcome back, kids, to... What Lurks Behind behind Podcast Podcast Zero. Zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul. And I almost stumbled on that part too, but I got it right. And this week, jam-packed. Lots to talk about. I mean, it's October, which, interestingly enough about October, I love this month. I really do. It's probably, well, it's not probably. It is the best month of the year. But it's also the most exhausting because <laughs> everything comes out. Like just this morning alone, I log on to Shutter and they've just added eight more movies. And I'm like, oh, I don't have the stamina for this. No, but seriously, I do. But um, yeah, like it, everything's coming out. Like this week alone, we have Halloween Kills gets released. Uh, Ice Nine Kills new album, Welcome to Horror ha- Wel- Welcome to Horrorwood. I almost said Horror Hound. That's a magazine. Welcome to Horrorwood. The Silver Scream Two gets released this week. Uh, Chucky TV series on Sci-Fi and USA Network that gets released this week. There's so much going on, and it's like, not to mention, like I said, like Shutter just dropped what eight new movies, and plus they just had the Joe Bob Hoedown. I'll be talking about that in a minute. Um, like there's so much going on and then news like there's news everywhere like it's just it's i love it there's so much but it sometimes it's hard to keep up (laughs) so it's like all right when i see things it's like jot that down gotta remember to watch this movie and talk about this and blah 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 but anyways moving on to actually let's talk about some shutter films recently watched two of the shutter exclusives one, not bad. One, really fucking good. So, we'll start with the okay one, which was Seance. I'd seen it on there for a bit now. I knew it was an all-girl film and stuff like that, and I was like, alright, you know what, let's check it out. It's a new flick starring Suki uh, Waterhouse, uh, Madison Beatty, and Anana. I, I, w- I want to say her name right, Anana Sarkis. It was written and directed by Simon Barrett, who did the movie uh, You're Next. It's an alright movie. Nothing too special. Uh, I will say that Suki is amazing as Camille. She She's the standout. Um, and Hamilton, Ontario native Anana as Alice was quite good as the bitchy girl. Uh, as the movie goes on, she's not as bitchy, which is what really shows some growth in her character. It was kind of funny. I read a comment online where somebody was like, there's no growth to these characters. I'm like, didn't watch the same movie I did then. There is a bit of growth. I mean, it's not a lot. It's, I think the movie's like 88 minutes long. It's not even an hour and a half. <laughs> like, Well, it's just barely an hour and a half. You know what I mean? So what are you going to do in an hour and a half? This isn't... I think you really want to see growth in characters you need to make it a series right and this is a movie so it is what it is the other girls in the movie are good they're not bad um 
there's no bad performances really um there's a bit the a few of the girls are a bit underused i will say that but aside from that it's decent acting um the movie definitely has some moments but i will say that when it was done it wasn't one of those oh my god that was amazing kind of movies like and I, here's the thing also is that i realize that not all movies are going to have that factor they're not they're not all going to have that element of omg must post on social media right away about how much i love this movie um not every movie is going to have that and with seance it didn't i'm not saying i hated the movie and didn't mind it still walked away going well it wasn't a waste of time it was a decent movie but it, I think it's also because it didn't do anything really new. There is a cool twist at the end of the movie, but it's also a twist that I sort of saw coming. So it was like, whatever. Still, though, nonetheless, it was it's worth the watch. And I was like, I'm going to mention that on the show as a recommendation. I mean, it is worth checking out. It just... If you're going to give it like a ranking out of, let's say, out of 10, it's probably like a 5 or a 6. It's not it's not through the roof amazing. The one that is, though, is a movie called The Boy Behind the Door. Now, that one? Holy shit. Uh, that was 88 minutes. That was actually the movie that was 88 minutes. I forget what seance was. So, The Boy Behind the Door, 88-minute long movie. Basically, your cast is... Two boys, two kidnappers, and a couple cops. That's basically it. This movie is tense as fuck. 88 minutes will go by extremely fast, and it's excruciating at the same time because it is a very tense film. It's very quick-paced. Wastes no runtime at all. The 88 minutes of the movie is fully packed. Uh, and basic premise, two kids are kidnapped. And they have to escape their kidnappers. That's the very, very basic bare bones to this movie. I don't want to say anything else because anything else I could say would technically spoil this. And this is one that I'm seriously... I Eventually it will be a full breakdown review on this show. It just Today I'm just mentioning it because it has... It, everybody right now is watching horror films for October. Make sure this is one of them you watch. This one is fucking amazing it, and what pulled me in was when i was looking on shutter i saw that it had uh, the five out of five skulls um rating or ranking or whatever and at the same time i was reading some of the comments and every single person was saying the same thing holy shit this movie was tense i was on the edge of my seat the whole time that's not and i'm like wow like and it was consistently down the line. Like, I think I saw one bad review out of, like, a hundred. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm in. Uh, and what a great decision that was. Like, very, very impressed. The two boys, Lonnie Chavis and Ezra Dewey, are amazing. And here's the thing. This is something to remember when you go into this movie. This, is, this movie is you're watching two kids that, one, are acting their asses off. But, two are acting like kids. So I I did see a few reviews online where people were saying, well, the kids make dumb decisions. These kids are supposed to be, I think, 10 and 11 years old. Like, try being a kid, being kidnapped, you're panicking, you're scared for your life, and you're going to make, like, bang-on great decisions? No, you're not. Um, So, I mean, when I watched it, 
I was like, I can totally understand where these kids are coming from and why they're making some of the decisions they are. They're kids that, you know, 10 minutes before being kidnapped, were throwing a ball out in a field. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm like I said, I'm not going to talk much about this. This is one that if you do have a Shutter subscription, make sure you watch this fucking movie. It's easily one that... I walked away from it first impressions. I was like, that's a nine out of 10 and I don't see it dropping like, and it will be one that I will watch again and again and again, because these kids are phenomenal. I, both kids, if they stay in acting, have great futures ahead of them. Okay. What else did I want to talk about? Another shutter thing that happened recently, the Joe Bob's Halloween hoedown. Um, I know I talk about Joe Bob quite a bit on this show. He was one of the, influences for the show so i like to talk about my inspirations i will say this the halloween hoedown for 2021 was not my favorite of the halloween events um, that he's done but i still did enjoy it quite a bit and i'm just thankful that we have this thing we have the 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 last drive-in and I should be thankful. In Canada, it is Thanksgiving today. So let me be thankful for Joe Bob. Um, he showed two films. He showed the movie Angel from 1983, I believe, and Terror Train from 1980. And you're like, well, those aren't Halloween-related films. Yes, apparently some other people were not happy with that as well. They kind of bitched and complained. But here's my thing. In the past two years... Like prior to this year, he did Halloween related movies. Uh, two years ago, he did Halloween, Halloween 4, and Halloween 5. People complained about that. Then last year, he did Haunt and Hack o' Lantern, and people complained about that. So the thing is, is that no matter what Joe Bob's going to do, people are going to complain. And this year, for those who complained about, you know, the fact that these two movies technically weren't Halloween-related movies, well, I guess it's your time to join the tribe and go ahead and bitch all you want. It's kind of cool. This year, Joe Bob even dressed up. He dressed up as a taco. It was kind of funny. Um, the highlight of the event was easily the special guests. He had David Gordon Green and Jason Bloom. And of course you're saying, well, you know, it's to promote Halloween kills. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that though. It was the two of them listening to them talk was extremely interesting, especially Jason Blum or Blum, sorry. I've always said Bloom and apparently it's Jason Blum, so kind of like Carl Lemley, I never can say names right. <laughs> Even when they're English or Canadian or American names, I still can't say them right. Uh, anyways, he there was at one point he was talking about the whole idea of paying actors. And it was great just listening to it because we all know that, well, I don't know if everyone knows this, but Hollywood likes to play this little game where they always say that no movie makes a profit. And Jason Blum, when he started at Blumhouse and, you know, started making films and whatnot, his approach was completely different. He changed all that shit and said, no, what we're going to do is we're actually going to compensate our actors for being in these movies. So if the movie hits a certain point, they get an extra bonus and I pay them by giving them an extra check. And it was funny because he, he makes this point of saying, you know, when you pay your people, they want to work for you more and more and more. And I'm like, 
Do you know if every type of business in the world actually went with this model? People wouldn't mind actually working. Like, seriously. And I even think, like, within my own profession, like, well, I call it profession, whatever. It's a jokey little retail job. But, I mean, if, if you pay your people, they'll do a good job. At my job, people are always complaining about how no one does a good job. Well, you pay them peanuts, you're going to get what you get. So it was in, it was very interesting listening to Jason Blum talk about that. And if you actually look at Blumhouse Films, how many actors constantly return. And it's, it's something that once I heard him talking about that, I'm like, wow. Like this dude, like I may not like every film that Blumhouse has released, but listening to him talk, I'm like... I, Kudos, dude. Full respect. <laughs> um, but I mean, overall, the event was fun. It was six hours long for two movies, so a lot of content there. There was a lot of great interviews and whatnot. Uh, as for the films, Angel is one. This was my first time I'm seeing it, actually, so it was kind of cool. Not one I think I'd return to often. It was an all right film. I didn't hate it. Uh, but it's one that I was like, okay, I've seen it. If I'm ever going to watch it again, it would be because I want to watch the Joe Bob segment. So I would watch, I would watch that, um, like version of it. Uh, but it's not, it, I don't know. It wasn't my favorite choice, but I mean, again, it great interviews with David Gordon Green during that, that film. And then Terror Train, well, obviously I'd seen that before, so it was like, okay, the movie's here, it's kind of cool, kind of fun to watch. It's a New Year's movie if you really break it down, so it was like, mm, wrong holiday, but okay, whatever. I'm just happy we have these things. I'm happy we have Joe Bob, I'm happy that we have Darcy the Male Girl and The Last Drive-In and all that other shit. So, I mean, it was great, and Shudder, you know, they did something for us this year. That's all we ask. Uh, but that's enough talk about Shudder stuff. You know, I've talked enough about Shudder. I want to talk about something really quickly. Uh, something I discovered on Instagram of all places. It's a book. I know I don't talk about books very often on here. <laughs> the next two topics actually will kind of talk about books. First one is a kid's book and you're like, oh shit, here we go. Um, it's a book called The Year Without Halloween. Just, it was one of those weird things. I was on Instagram and in somebody's like stories, I saw them post about this book called The Year Without Halloween. And it's a kid's book done sort of like the old Richard Scary. Is it Richard Scary I'm thinking of? No, not Richard Scary. I'm trying to think of uh, Robert Munch. His books like the, the Paper Bag Princess and stuff like that. It's done kind of like that. Illustrated sort of like comic style. But, you know, it was it was a cute little book uh, written by Shane Bitterling and I saw the book and so I looked it up and found out that here in Canada on Amazon it was like really inexpensive and I'm like it looks kind of cute and had like you know rave reviews and everything so I'm like all right I'll check it out and I'm not gonna lie it's a good little kid's book it's about the year that quote-unquote Halloween was canceled so I was a little nervous about how I would uh, like received the book and there's no mention of cough cough in it so i was like okay this is kind of cool and it's more talking about the idea that you know stores were closed and people were staying in and stuff like that and it was about how it affected kids which was something that 
you know, I remember last Halloween thinking about, well, shit, like, you better allow kids to at least go trick-or-treat. I mean, fuck. They've had to deal with everything in this adult world of bullshit. You know, at least give them that night. And so that's kind of what this book was about. It's a book about keeping the spirit alive, even though the normal traditions, you know, can't be enjoyed, which was a really good message. The story is about a kid named Boone, uh, which is funny because I, when I saw the name Boone, it reminded me of Nightbreed. But anyways, uh, a kid named Boone, uh, Boone, sorry, not Booned, uh, he was sad because nothing was open and he couldn't enjoy trick-or-treating with his friends. He couldn't do all his typical Halloween traditions. And his mother, being the smart one, she decides, well, hold on a second. Halloween doesn't have to be canceled and it doesn't have to die. We will do things within our limitations. So they turn their house into, like, Dracula's castle and Boone dresses up as Dracula. And they have fun doing all the things that they could do, including listening to a record of... You know, spooky sounds, which is something I still do at 46 years old. Um, I, I love listening to sound effect, uh, like tapes and records and obviously old soundtracks and stuff. Like that. I love doing that. Um, but like, and, you know, he does the bobbing for apples thing with his mom and all this. It's a great little book. It's only, I think it's like 36 pages long. It's a very quick read. Um Every, every page rhymes, so it it's very creative that way. But it's a great little book with a good message that, you know, sometimes it's the little things that matter. And it's all about how you keep Halloween in your heart. And for those of you who have listened to this show throughout, and I mean, even if you're new to the show, it's kind of the way I've approached pretty much every day for the last couple decades, you know? Like, it's just... Every day is Halloween to me. Like, not not that I have to be out, you know, trick-or-treating every day or dressing up in costumes every day, but just it's about just keeping the spirit alive and always loving all the good things that come with Halloween, which includes, you know, jack-o'-lanterns and horror films and and spooks and, you know, just fun and cool stuff. And that's what this book was about, and that's what caught my attention. And I was like, I'm in. And I definitely recommend you can find Shane Bitterling on Instagram. I actually um, I did start following him on there just because like I really like this book. And I think that actually the book itself is my lurkers recommendation. It bring out the child in all of us. And at the same time, it's a great little Halloween book with a great little message. And now finally, my final topic, which is based on a book. And this is where I get a little ranty. Okay, so Hellraiser. Oh, yeah, Hellraiser. There's a series coming out, but there's also a movie coming out, a movie that's being released uh, by Spyglass and Hulu. And recently it was announced who would play Pinhead. Uh Pinhead is not the actual name of the character. It's something that through pop culture <laughs> has kind of caught on. But um, Pinhead was originally just a name that the special effects crew gave the idea of the makeup to the idea of the character because he's got pins in his head and whatever. Anyways, this past week it was announced Jamie Clayton, who is a transsexual actress will be playing the hell priestess 
or Pinhead. And in typical social media ways, people have exposed themselves yet again. I'm really stalling on saying this because I'm going to say it just as plain as simple as I can. People read the goddamn source material before calling it cancel culture or woke, your favorite word, or any other goddamn hokey, fooey little fucking word you can think of. My God, what... Okay, so Hellraiser 1987 was based on a book. Yeah, for those who didn't fucking know... Uh, the original novella called The Hellbound Heart was written by Clive Barker before the fucking movie even came out. And you want to know something about Pinhead? You know, your your little hell priest? You want to know something about him? He was androgynous. Meaning it was androgynous. It had no sex for crying out loud. And it had a wispy feminine voice if you read the book. Here's my thing. So Jamie is a trans actress. who's going to be playing the role. And I think it's fucking goddamn brilliant. I think she's going to fucking nail it out of the park. No, will she be better than, you know, Doug Bradley? Uh, probably not. I'm not asking her to be. So there's that. Uh, and any true fans of Hellraiser? Honestly, those of you who have done your fucking homework, you know that Clive always wanted it to be this way anyways. Um... I don't know. We might actually get an adaptation that actually resembles the book. And that's the funny thing, too, is that in a world where everyone always complains about these adaptations and they say, oh, it didn't follow the book. Well, for once, we're actually following the fucking book and people are still fucking pissed off. This is... I hate people. I really do. <laughs> I don't hate you. Um, but I just hate the uh, the overall perceptions uh, just this morning I, I well this afternoon because I kind of sleep in the morning uh, <laughs> I log on to the social medias to see if there's you know anything worthwhile talking about and I found out that in comic book uh, the comic book world of DC comics so Clark Kent's and Lois Lane's son John Kent apparently is coming out as bisexual and the world is freaking out not my Superman he's not Superman your Clark Kent is perfectly fine. They didn't change him. But people are freaking out. And it's like, why? If you don't like something, fucking walk away from it. It says the guy who likes to pick fun at Hocus Pocus. But I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, if there's people out there that love Hocus Pocus, that's fine. I Please, enjoy the movie. I, don't, I, I honestly don't fucking care. It's not my thing. But I'm not going to shit on people for liking it. <sighs> The thing is, is that getting back to Hellraiser, David S. Goyer and Clyde Barker are working to make a faithful adaptation of the Hellbound Heart. Obviously, there'll be some minor changes. That happens with everything. But do you guys remember Revelations or Judgment? Fuck even Hell World. What the hell was that? But okay, Hell World is guilty pleasure for me just because of all the actors and actresses that were in it. But Henry Cavill was in that, by the way, I might add. But, um, but I mean, my God, we the, the last two Hellraiser movies that we've had have been fucking god-awful. And Clive Barker has full rights to this. He's coming back, he's overseeing it, he's, he's going to give Hellraiser a, a possibility of having this great comeback, and we're pissed off because it's a trans actress that's playing Pinhead. Um, 
please. You do know that in the comic books, Kirsty Cotton, she also becomes Pinhead. So it's not the first time or the second time, actually, that, you know, a female is Pinhead. I don't know. I I I don't I don't fucking get it. It, it this is the world we live in. You know what? Let's let's just move on. I don't want to be bitchy. This is a this is a fun podcast. This is a fun episode. Lots to talk about. And I'm going to be your history teacher today. <laughs> uh because we're going to talk about a movie that many have come to call uh Dracula in the Desert. Yeah. Did I mention what episode 106 is? Yeah, episode 106. It's the Octoberween Universal Studio Monsters event, volume 2. A little movie from 1932. Oh, see, I rhymed. Ha, ha, ha. But, um, no. So this movie stars Boris Karloff. They credited him as Karloff. I thought that was awesome. But anyways. Uh, it's... A movie that is unlike some of the other monster films, but it's still very solid in its own right. Let's say we're going to do the trailer timeout, and when we come back, full-on talking about bandages and Egyptians and a director and an actress that didn't get along. From 1932, we will come back and talk about... Zombie. Back in a splat, kids. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens this casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. <coughs> There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. Kids, boils and ghouls, lurkers, and any other creepy freaks out there, welcome to History 101 with your teacher, Postmortem Paul. Alright, not actually a history teacher. I'm that stupid guy who pretends he's smart, but there's a lot to talk about with this movie. A lot of links to history, a lot of lore, a lot of truths versus fiction and all that sort of stuff, so... We'll get right into it because, like I said, I have a lot of notes on this one. The Mummy. Mummy 
is a spooky movie. It's watched a lot at Halloween, but it was released near Christmas. So does that make it a Christmas movie? Not really, but released December 22nd, 1932. Three days away from Christmas. Ah, that lovable Christmas holiday. Maybe we should call The Mummy a Christmas holiday horror film. No, we won't. But anyways. The Mummy was directed by Carl Fruand. And you may remember that name if you tuned into the Dracula episode. What, a month ago? Month and a half ago? Something like that. Anyways, he was the cinematographer for Dracula. That was also the uncredited director. Because he kind of took over directing duties while Todd Browning was doing other stuff and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, he does have 163 credits to his name, but only 20 films he actually directed, which include the aforementioned Dracula, of course, and The Mummy for Universal Studios. He was the cinematographer on Dracula. For this film, he was specifically hired to direct, so it's technically his first directing credit. Um especially for a film in the United States. But uh, he also was the cinematographer on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which uh, Metropolis is, well, it's more sci-fi than anything else, but it's got its creepy elements. And so Carl knows how to do the creepy pretty good, I guess you'd say. Uh, the movie is filmed by Carl Lemley Jr. See that? I said his name right. Yay! Uh, the screenplay was written by John L. Balderston. Uh, from a story written by Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Scher. Now, Nina, uh, she was uncredited for, but she also wrote the movie The Mummy's Hand, which came out one year before this. Basically, same story. Um, keep in mind, that is the, that Mummy's Hand is not to be confused with the 1940 film The Mummy's Hand, which came out after this. See, it's kind of funny because like in, you know, 2021, we're always talking about remakes and sequels and reboots and we get all pissed off about it. And why didn't they change the title and this and that? Um, in 1931 and in 1940, there were two movies both called The Mummy's Hand. The 1941 is the one that's a little bit more famous, but there was one that came out a year before this movie, shared the same premise and all, but um, was written by Nina Wilcox Putnam. And then Richard Scher, he also helped uh, work on the 1931 Frankenstein movie that I just talked about last week. So, special effects. Special effects were done by John P. Fulton. Uh, he worked on 253 films. Yeesh. Uh, however, <laughs> some of those are quite the Titanic-sized films. Uh, we're talking films like Frankenstein, uh, The Invisible Man, and he worked on four of the sequels, um, which I might add got him attention by the Academy, and he even got some nominations for that. You don't hear of that today. <laughs> um, he worked on The Ten Commandments. He worked on Vertigo, uh, Showboat, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and To Catch a Thief. And like I said, like that that's a small little portion of the 253 films that he worked on. It's kind of funny about John. So his father was completely against him getting into the film industry. But the movie biz was always where his heart was. So his first job after he went to school uh, for electrical engineering, but his first job in the film industry, get this, hold on, <laughs> you're gonna, this is going to kill you. Uh, 
he uh, made $25 a week. 25 fucking dollars. That's it. $25 a week as an assistant cameraman. Uh, eventually would work his way up to operator. And then finally at the dawn of the, what they call the talkie era when vocals and talking dialogue actually started making its way into films. He became a cinematographer uh, through that. He made his way to universal after working at the Frank William laboratory and that was when he would grab the attention of the movie world, starting with some of his work that he did for these very monster, you know, monster and horror films and whatnot. Uh, but just the the part that threw me was twenty five dollars a week. <laughs> That's what he was making. Yeesh! And this in this era, you know, fifteen dollars an hour is considered minimum wage. Like, just it's it's mind blowing, but. Uh, the music for the film was uncredited, but it was done by James Dietrich, uh, known primarily for work he had done on short films. Um, he was a composer until 1940, but he did have his mu his music was also featured in a 1999 film known as Angela's Ashes, that starred Emily Watson and Robert Carlyle. Now we're gonna move on to the starring cast. Starring cast. Last week, I, I left this man's name. Well, it was supposed to be the last, but it's because I <laughs> accidentally forgot that I didn't mention Edward Van Sloan, so Edward's name technically was the last one I talked about. But I meant to leave this man's name as the last one. This week, I'm going to do it first because I'm just going to do it in the order that it shows up on pretty much every internet page you can find. Boris Karloff as Artith Bay slash Emotep slash... The Mummy. He was billed as Karloff. That's all they said. Um, funny, I, not funny thing, but interesting thing about Ardith Bay, that name, is an anagram. Um, oh, by the way, Ardith Bay is the name that the mummy goes by 10 years later when he comes back and he's supposed to be like this historian now and whatnot. Uh, but, anyways, uh, Ardith Bay is an anagram of death by Ra and Ra is the Egyptian sun god. So they, they kind of paid attention to how they did that. Ardith Bay is also, I believe the name that they used in the 1999 mummy movie as well. Was, uh, the character's name in that, uh, moving on to Zeta. I want to say her last name is Johan Zeta Johan as Helen Grosvenor. And Princess Anksunaman. Uh, she was only in eight movies. Um, I have a, a little bit more on her later, which will explain the whole eight movie thing. But she was only in eight movies. But uh, some of those movies uh, included The Man Who Dared, uh, The Sin of Nora Moran, and Raiders of the Living Dead in 1986. I might add that Raiders of the Living Dead is cited as being one of the worst zombie movies ever made. <laughs> and on IMDb, it's holding a rating of 2.6 out of 10 right now. Um, but yeah, it's li listed as one of the worst zombie movies ever made. If you are really curious and want to watch this thing, the full movie is available on YouTube. There's two versions available on YouTube right now. There's one where you can watch it from USA Networks up all night with commercials added as well. And then there's the full 
movie without commercials in 480p and it yeah i wouldn't recommend it but if you're interested hey have at it hoss <laughs> uh moving on to david manners as frank wemple and frank uh frank david was in movies like dracula and the black cat i've talked about him before arthur byron as sir joseph wemple uh, 27 roles, which also included films like The Man with Two Faces, Shadow of Doubt, and The Casino Murder Case. Edward Van Sloan. Hey, this time I'm mentioning him in the place that I put him in my notes. <laughs> uh, he plays Dr. Muller, which is basically the same as Van Helsing, sort of. Uh, anyways, Edward obviously was in Dracula. He was in Frankenstein, Dracula's daughter, so on and so on. Bramwell Fletcher as Ralph Norton. Bramwell, I will say, reminds me a lot of Dwight Fry in his role in this. Very minor, but he reminds me of Dwight Fry when he kind of loses his mind as Renfield. We get a bit of that. Um, Bramwell was also in films like Sven Galley, uh, Daughter of the Dragon, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and the undying monster, but he did a uh, quite a bit of TV work. It's where a lot of people would know him from. Noble Johnson as the Nubian. That's what he's credited as. Um, I'm not gonna lie. If you know films of this era, a lot of times they did depict African Americans as slaves. It's a shame, but it's it was the era. So he is sort of like the Nubian servant. Um, in other words, they were portraying him as a higher up slave. It's, it was the times it's sort of, I mean, at least his character is important to the story in real life. He was a good friend of Lon Chaney's. That's kind of cool. And he's worked on some pretty cool films like the mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu, Moby Dick, Murders in the Rue Morgue, King Kong, Son of Kong and Dante's Inferno from 1935. Uh, to end it off, we have Catherine Byron as Frau Mueller, Leonard Moody as Professor Pearson, and James Crane as Pharaoh Amenophis. The runtime for the film is an hour and 13 minutes. It was considered approved as it was pre code, so not technically a rating. And the budget was 196000 I have no clue what it grossed. Synopsis for the film. Well, yeah, you guys, you know what the movie's about, but I'm going to do it anyways. A team of British archaeologists led by Sir Joseph Wemple discover the mummified remains of the ancient Egyptian prince Imhotep, along with the legendary Scroll of Thoth. When one of the archaeologists recites the scroll aloud, Imhotep returns to life, but escapes. Several years later, Imhotep has taken on the guise of a wealthy man as he searches Egypt for his long-lost love, whom he believes has been reincarnated as the lovely Helen, played by Zita Johan. For this segment of the podcast, I'm calling it From the Mummy's Tomb. Um, so, where to start? Well, let's start like this. Okay, so 
unlike its predecessors, Dracula and Frankenstein, both of those were based on books. Kind of like Hellraiser. Uh, but anyways, The Mummy, however, was not based on a novel. It was inspired by, in 1922, the uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun was found and it was, you know, opened and whatnot. That's what this was inspired on. It was inspired on the finding of King Tut's tomb. Um, it was also partially based on a nine-page treatment that was written by Shayer and Putnam uh, called Cagli Ostro. I think I'm saying that right, Cagliostro, which was about a 3,000-year-old magician who survived by injecting nitrates based on the famous Italian prophet uh, who claimed that he had lived for several centuries and whatnot. So there was this nine-page treatment that was written by Nina and Richard, and then John Balderston was brought in to write a screenplay based on that, uh, because also Balderston had covered the um, the whole story on King Tut's tomb, so he was familiar with that whole story of like the tomb and the curse and whatnot. So he took that and he took the Cagliostro nine page treatment. He kind of put it together, um, moved the story to Egypt because uh, in Cagliostro, I believe the story took place in New York. So he kind of switched it and moved it to Egypt. He made the story about the revived prince trying to find the soul of his long-lost love, resurrect her from the dead uh, using the scroll. Um, and the reason why it was rewritten uh, and sent, like placed in Egypt was because at that time, because of the finding of King Tut's tomb, everybody at that time was just massively in love with anything Egyptian. So they figured they would cash in on the whole Egyptian lore. Um the, the film had several titles prior to being called The Mummy, such as The King of the Dead. They were going to call it Emotep. Uh, but right before its release, it was renamed uh, The Mummy. The Scroll of Thoth, to kind of explain that, is sort of like the Necronomicon from the Evil Dead series. Um, whereas once the incantation is read, it's supposed to bring the dead back to life. Um I have a little bit more on the scroll later on in my notes, uh, but I want to talk a bit. Okay, so there was rumors about the filming of this movie that circulated about the tension between the director and Zita Johan. Carl uh, Fruin and Zita, supposedly, they didn't like each other. That's supposedly the rumor. Uh, one story that has circulated is about how... Um, Zeta had Carl and his wife over one night for dinner and Carl apparently trying to antagonize Zeta told her that in parts of the movie she would have to film uh, from the waist up completely nude. Uh, in other words, doing tit shots. She apparently knew that he was trying to piss her off so she went along with it to try and counter it. And said, go ahead, I'll do it, as long as you can get it past the censors. Because, as everyone knows, I mean, I've talked about this even just last week during the Frankenstein episode. The censors were very strict back in the 30s. So her whole thing was, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do some nude shots. But let's see you get that past the censors, trying to piss him off. Uh, whether or not the story is true, that's the whole thing that's up for grabs. Because... It's been a lot of talks, uh, especially over the past 
10 or so years that are claiming now that a lot of these quote-unquote interviews that happened with stars from The Mummy never actually happened. It's just shit people made up to, you know, have their controversy with the film and whatnot. I'm not going to lie. Look, man, here's the thing about The Mummy. Like, my grandparents were barely even teenagers at the time this movie was released. My mom wasn't even born for another 20 years, so that tells you where the fuck I was. There's no fucking way I'd know the truth to all of this. I don't know. I read stories on the internet and I go, hmm, sounds good. But then I, you know, I'm following up and I'm finding out that now people are saying these stories aren't true, this and that. I don't fucking know. Now, one thing that apparently is very true is that the actress uh, Zeta did enjoy working with Boris Karloff and that she has been interviewed where they have video interviews of her saying, you know, he was a joy to work with. Apparently, though, she did say he always seemed like he was sad. Uh, Apparently, Karloff would come off as being somewhat depressed. Uh, This was nothing that hadn't been noted before because apparently everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people would comment that when they worked with Boris Karloff, they'd always feel kind of sorry for him because he always seemed to carry himself with a bit of a sadness. But other than that, she did comment how she did love working with him. I believe there was even a story I read where at one point she had been working for hours on end. She ended up, whether it was through exhaustion or dehydration or whatever, she kind of fainted. And when she came to, it was him. It was Boris Karloff that was there to like help her through it and all that sort of stuff. I guess they had a really good acting rapport between the two. So that's always a nice story to hear as opposed to yeah her and the director hated each other well okay whatever but they made a good movie so does it matter (laughs) um how do i like this movie though here's my thing i like this movie a lot i do i will admit it's not one that i watch as often as say frank the bride of frankenstein or dracula i watch those two quite often This one I don't watch as much. I was glad I was reviewing it for the show this week because it gave me a chance to watch it again and sort of rekindled my love for it. Um, The thing with this movie, and I know I've been saying how like this is the month of the Universal Studio monster movies and I was going to talk about all the monsters and stuff. This is less of a monster movie, more of a tragic romance when you actually break this story down, which is kind of weird because I mentioned earlier how like Certain people have said that this is like basically Dracula in the desert. It has some of the same beats. It does, but Dracula was not as much a romance. There were romantic elements to it, but this one is more a romance than that was. Um, I mean, you look at the story, like how how tragic it is. You have a prince that was punished to be buried alive for his sacrilege. And his sacrilege was he tried to bring his father back from the dead because he was grief-stricken. He's found out. He's judged. He's sentenced to death by burial. um, So he's taken away from his princess. And... You know, he's lost in the grounds of Egypt for centuries. And then he's his tomb is rediscovered. He's he's brought back. You got the archaeologist's assistant played by uh, Bramwell, who reminds me a lot of, you know, Dwight Fry. But, um, you know, the incantation is said. Imhotep is revived. And then he disappears for 10 years. He comes back. 
And now he's, you know, like this well-established historian and this and that, and he's looking to find his long lost love. It's, it's a, it's a Gothic romance. It, it's tragic. It's somewhat poetic at the same time. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. And at the same time, very tragic. Um, the thing is, is that Emotep or Ardeth Bay, should we see them as a villain? Like, you know, because the mummy is the monster, right? But is he a villain? That's the thing, because you got to figure he, if anything, he's grief stricken. You know, he lost his father. He didn't, he wasn't ready to lose his father. So he wanted to bring him back. I mean, yes, it's wrong, but he's still a sympathetic character. Um, sort of like the Frankenstein's monster, whereas it wasn't so much he was a villain. He was just, he was a sympathetic character because he didn't ask to be brought back. He was brought back against his will. Um, not that he was, a, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was a creation. With Emotep, Emotep was someone who, he just, he was really grief-stricken. He couldn't get over his father's death, so... He attempted to bring him back using, you know, the scroll and was caught. And, you know, the the law of man says you can't do that. So they buried him alive, which that scene when they when they show the flashback and they're showing the bandages being wrapped around his head and everything. And then they show the tomb being put down and he's being buried alive. It's like, think about that for a minute. People say that they think that the mummy is not so much a horror film. That's a pretty horrifying thought. Could you imagine being buried alive? Um, the, the fuck you wouldn't be like freaked out. Um, <laughs> but even though like I, I get it, he should have known better than to play with the forces of reincarnation. I get that. It, you know, but it's relatable. If you think about it, how many of us have lost someone or something or a pet, a loved one, and we haven't wished we could bring them back? I, I'm not going to lie. I, as I've talked about on this show before, when I lost Wally, like it was hard. And you know, I know you say, Oh, he's just a dog. When to me, it was a lot more. And I would have, I would have loved to have brought him back. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's a relatable story. Um, it's one that makes it stand out. It's one that you can also see its legacy, how it's traveled down the, 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 de the decades. Um, I was thinking just recently, obviously, because I mentioned about Ice Nine Kills and their new latest song and everything, but another movie that has that theme of being grief stricken and wanting to bring something back from the dead, Pet Cemetery. I mean, so one thing that I do love about the mummy, and people will, you know, people will say, well, it's like a kid's movie these days and whatnot, but the story is still timeless nonetheless. Um, Special effects wise, makeup wise, okay. So you watch this movie and you think, well, it doesn't seem so demanding. It it seems fairly straightforward. And like Frankenstein would seem like it was a lot more of a demanding film in terms of you know effects and and the makeup and whatnot. But talk to Boris Karloff, and that was a different story because he even claimed that the makeup he wore for the Mummy was more uncomfortable than that of what he wore as the Frankenstein creature. Um, and this is something that I didn't realize, but when you're watching this movie and you see um, when when Boris Karloff's face, like to, to have the the wrinkled effect on his face, uh, that was layers of cotton that were put on his face, and it was like 
sort of like crusted on his face and whatnot, which apparently made his facial mu- muscles. He had, a, he had a hard time moving. He had a hard time speaking with that. It's weird because to look at it, I mean, again, we're watching it as a black and white film, but to look at it, it was like, it didn't seem like it was that bad, but apparently, and also his makeup took eight hours to apply, but apparently it was very uncomfortable for him. Um, and even though like the mummy is less monster than the Frankenstein's monster, the makeup itself made it harder for him to deal with. So it, it's kind of interesting how it has like that, that effect and whatnot. One thing that I always thought that was kind of funny about this character is in a way it, again, the influence of the evil dead and whatnot, but the mummy is somewhat like a deadite <laughs> way before Ashley Williams even donned that chainsaw and boomstick. But, um, I think of Evil Dead because I think of the Thoth scroll, you know, the scroll of Thoth, which is in this film, it's uh, it is a fictional artifact. It's not something that actually exists uh, in Egyptian lore, but its inspiration does come from the Book of the Dead. Not so much the Necronomicon Book of the Dead, but the actual Book of the Dead, which was an ancient Egyptian uh, funerary text. Usually it was on the walls uh, it was like the, the, the scrolls, um, the scripts on the walls and whatnot, but, um, the book of the dead, the actual Egyptian artifact, uh, consisted of a number of, you know, magic spells, so to speak, that were intended to assist a dead person's journey through the duat, um, or underworld, so to speak, uh, into the afterlife. Uh, and this was written by many priests over, you know, a, over a, a course of about a thousand years of Egyptian history, this all evolved. So the the scroll of thoughts was based on that. Um, the the funny thing is in this film, obviously that there's that fictional element of resurrection. In Egyptian lore, there was it was never believed that resurrection was possible. There is no such idea as reanimated bodies, and the the whole idea of mummification was a sacred process that was um, put in place to help the body travel from the land of the living to the afterlife. Um, It is possible that mummies were buried alive. That is not out of the question, Uh, but never with the idea that they would resurrect centuries later. That was something that it it wasn't, it wasn't thought of. Um, But the, the, the idea of mummification, that was very much a real thing. So, when they when creating this movie there was elements of reality mixed with reality uh, with ideas of fiction and whatnot um in terms of actors and actresses in this film there's two that i feel i have to talk about number one boris karloff obviously in this role i believe he really shines and i believe he shines more so than he did even as frankenstein's monster um I, I understand that the monster of Frankenstein is more iconic. It's definitely a more familiar face and whatnot. But in this role, we really get to see Boris act his ass off. Like he's given, um, he's given some great lines, his voice command, his emotional range, which is interesting because when you watch this, you don't really find that his emotional range is very subtle. It's a lot of subtleties. It's the way he he tones his voice. Sometimes it's the way his eyes look and stuff like that. He doesn't go over the top, uh, but he's very intimidating. There's an intimidation factor uh, 
while almost seeming gentlemanly elegant. Um, and for me, honestly, uh, of, of the many roles of Boris Karloff has done, this for me is one of his best. I think this is like his finest hour. Uh, the other one that I feel I need to talk about is Zita Johan. Uh, for starters, she's a gorgeous woman. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, very stunning. But past that, she's basically in this movie asked to play, she's been asked to play two different roles. Same with Boris for the most part, but her role, she has, on one hand, she has to play Helen, you know, a woman of the times. And at, on the other hand, she has to play Princess Anksunaman, uh, who is, you know, an ancient Egyptian princess. And when you watch this, maybe it didn't seem like it was very much, especially as the princess, because, you know, she has to play it as if she's under like this, this trance, like this trance spell, whatever. But in my opinion, I think that makes it doubly harder. Like, cause she's got to play a woman who's completely alert. She has to play a woman who's under a trance and she has, and both of these women are from different times. So when you actually think about it, it actually makes it a lot harder. And knowing like when, when I was doing my, uh, my research into her, her background and whatnot, she actually believed in the art of the occult. She believed in reincarnation. She believed that we could communicate with the dead. So she taps into that. Um, at least I, I would assume she does because it makes her, her portrayal of Helen and Ankh Sunaman so much more convincing. I, there's a part of me that has to believe that she totally was tapping into that. Um, a little bit of history on her. She was born Elizabeth Johan in a small town in Austria, Hungary. Duch Benchek, I believe is, <laughs> I'm really trying to say it right here. Uh, she was born in 1904, but her and her family moved to the States in 1911. In 1924, she made her debut on Broadway. She was playing, she was in the play, uh, The Man and the Masses. Her film debut was in 1931 in the film, The Struggle. Now, she only did seven films up to that point, And then she quit film acting. She wanted to just do theater. The same time she was doing theater, she was also teaching acting, um, to people with learning disabilities. Uh, apparently she was, she was known to be a very patient person. Her seventh film, her final film at that point was in 1934. It was a movie known as grand Canary. And then all the way later in 1986, she returns to one last film playing a librarian in the zombie flick Raiders of the Living Dead. Um, so, yeah, eight films. I did say she only did eight. Uh, but she she still had a career within acting. It was just a lot of it was teaching and she was doing a lot of stage work and whatnot. Um, apparently, I, I read somewhere, too, that she was also known to have worked with Orson Welles. So that's kind of cool. As great as David Manners, Edward Van Sloan, Bramwell Fletcher, Noble Johnson, Arthur Byron, as great as they all are, and there are, everyone in this cast is very solid. The movie is bought and sold on the performances of Karloff and Johan, which is that's why I, I had to talk about those two. It, it's one of the reasons why I have such a respect for this film. Um, my top three will always be Dracula, Frankenstein, and The Bride of Frankenstein. 
and they're all a huge part of why I love this genre so much. But this movie just has that right mixture of monster movie with tragic romance story that make it very memorable. And again, like it was just nice to go back and return to this film. It's been a while since I watched it. I'd say it's been at least two to three years since I watched it. So I was really glad to go back and really take it in. And I really enjoyed rewatching it. Um, in terms of the film's legacy, I mean, it's reached out so far into the genre. Um, Never actually had a connected sequel, though. There are other universal films with the mummy. You know, there's the mummy's hand and... Um, oh, shit, I can't even think of the rest of them at the moment. But um, there was like four or five quote-unquote sequels, but they were never actually connected to this film. Um, not to mention uh, the mummy has been remade, reimagined, rebooted, sequelized uh, through Hammer films. Uh, there was a lot of the Hammer films in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, the Stephen Summers series, uh, The Mummy and the Mummy Returns. Uh, and then there was <clears throat> The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. <laughs> and then you've got the the, the rock film, um, Dwayne Johnson's The Scorpion King, and all its bad sequels. Um, I mean, think about that for a minute. I, I mean, okay, so what was Scorpion King 3? Uh who was in that Tamara Morrison, who's gone on to play Boba Fett, uh, crystal V Dave Batista was in that Billy Zane, Billy Zane's amazing in phantoms. And then he does Scorpion King three. Wait, what? Uh, Ron Perlman. Uh, he was in that. Uh, and then let's not mention the fourth film where there was like poor Lou Ferrigno and Rucker Howard, their names got stuck in that one. And we won't talk about the fifth film, but, uh, let's move away from the Scorpion King films. Um, because all hilarity, all hilarity aside, you know, the mummy and its themes of lost love, grief and resurrection are all timeless stories. Uh, we've seen this time and time again in so many films. I, like I said, the two that I always think of is Evil Dead, especially with the link between the Book of the Dead and Necronomicon and whatnot. And Pet Cemetery being a story about a grief stricken uh, relative bringing back someone from the dead and whatnot. I mean, it just... Those themes are just so timeless. Uh, this movie itself holds an approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes of 88%. On IMDb, it's standing at 7.1 out of 10, with 7 being the dominant rating. I love this. Even the movie's poster, which is a great poster, by the way, great artwork, uh, was number 15 on Premiere Magazine's The the 25 best movie posters ever. I definitely have to agree with that. It's a great poster. Beautifully uh, done. Um, most critics, to be fair, when I was looking through different reviews and whatnot, most critics have had great things to say about this movie. There are some, <clears throat> like the New York Times, that uh, they called the movie, and I quote, costume melodrama for the children. Yeah, all right, whatever. Uh, Podcast Zero rating. This is how I see the movie, okay? This is my my summary of everything that I took in from doing this film this week. Uh, it's unlike the two films before it, Dracula and Frankenstein, but that doesn't mean it's not a worthy successor to the two juggernauts either. Uh, where Boris did a lot of grunting in Frankenstein, here he is given a palette of dialogue to play with, 
and he shines very bright with it. That I, I absolutely I love his performance in this movie. Uh, Zita Johan is uh, mesmerizing. She's gorgeous, uh, wonderfully convincing as both Helen and Anxunaman. Uh, the other supporting cast, they all complement the film well. There's not, a, there's no performance in here that is seen as derailing or out of place. It's it's a full package when it comes to the acting. And I mean, we have to give credit to the director, you know, Carl Fruin. I mean, he directed these actors to give us this film. I mean, the pacing's quick and solid. It's a 73-minute movie, and it doesn't feel it like. Before you know it, the story's done, and you're like, oh, hey, that was great. That was really awesome. The makeup is great, even though we don't see it. Well, okay, so Boris Karloff doesn't wear the bandages very long. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember reading that uh, when he's in the tomb and he's like he's he hasn't been reanimated yet, it's actually a dummy. It's not even him. Um so he didn't have to wear the bandages very long. Unfortunately, the face makeup, he had to wear a bit more, and he did feel it very constricting. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's still, it's amazing. Uh, this film is not as horrific as other films in, you know, within the Universal Studio Monsters and whatnot, but The Mummy does stand on its own. It is a force to be reckoned with. So I hereby declare that The Mummy is eight broken hearts out of ten. And I know you're like, well, that seems kind of sad to say, but I mean, this is a tragic romance to be respected and adored. I hopefully for the next ninety years um, and well after it's. I guess you could look at this as sort of like a, a romantic thriller or a romantic, a, 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 a dramatic thriller, maybe. Um, slight horror elements, obviously. Like I said, that the the whole the the flashback scene where we see him being bandaged up and being buried alive and whatnot. That, that's, that's kind of scary. That's some scary shit, man. Like even when he's first reanimated, uh, we don't see him do a whole lot, but just the idea of something that's been dead for centuries and all of a sudden is moving again. It's like, um, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a timeless story that is it's influenced everything from music and film to parodies and love stories. Um, it's it's definitely I it's not Bride of Frankenstein, but it's definitely it's still up there. It's an eight out of ten easily for me. Um, which I, again I'm still rating it even higher than what IMDb has it at at seven point one. So yeah, for me it's an eight out of ten. And on that note. That's it, kids. Review's over. Uh, show's over. Um, thanks for coming back. Thanks for tuning in. I have to say, I'm glad I came up with this decision to do the Universal Monster Movies for the month of October because it, it they're not movies that I go to a lot. Obviously, especially right now, like I said, month of October is like sometimes overwhelming with all the content that gets released. But they they sit proudly on my shelf, but I find that sometimes I forget to go back to them. And by doing this, I've been having a lot of fun revisiting these old films because it's bringing me back to my childhood, too. A lot of these movies I grew up watching on Shocktober or, you know, Channel 20 used to have their their double chiller thrillers and sometimes they did the universal studio monster movies and mainly they focused on hammer films but 
every now and then they would throw some of these out there and they were always fun to watch so it's been really good going back and revisiting them and just really brought me it, it, it's made things easier because this past year the past year and a half has really been trying on my emotional status sometimes <laughs> so, so it's been you know and mentally frustrating obviously so this has been nice it's been nice to just sit back and relax and relive some good memories and the mummy was really good to uh to come back to that so where to find the show obviously you're listening to it so you found it where you found it but you do know that it's uh, it's available on almost i want to say almost all podcast streaming apps i think there's a few that it, it's missing from but for the most part it's there uh which includes obviously spotify apple uh google podcast addict podbean fm player what is it audible uh it's on there like it amazon music there's a whole bunch of them pick and choose your faves my friends social media uh facebook.com slash what lurks behind podcast zero for facebook on instagram at what lurks behind podcast zero and on twitter at wlb podcast zero I'll announce next episode. I'll, uh, I'll tempt you with the taste of the next four way, four, four, bleh, I can't say this name, this word, foray. There we go. I'll set it right now. Um, the next foray into the Universal Studio Monsters, uh, will be one about gypsies. Oh, gypsies. Ooh. It'll be about curses. Woo! Nice. Nice. It'll be about men who need a shave. No. Um, next episode, yes. Let's howl at the moon with the wolf man. That will be the next episode. On that note, I'm just gonna shut up now. I've talked a lot. I've talked a lot. A lot of notes this week. But again, like I said, great, great great times it was good fun one recommendation i'm going to make for all of you if you have not please read the book the hellbound heart by clive barker um because i think that a lot of people are going to see that you know this movie that david s goyer and clive are working on might actually be really fucking good don't give in to social media people okay a lot of people like to say a lot of shitty things out there. Don't give in. Stay positive. Love what you love. You know what I mean? Alright, I've talked enough. You need to shut the fuck up! Hey, lick my plate, you dog dick! I'm so excited, I could squirt.